not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Hi there, you're listening to One Sensational Shot, The Evening Glass. This is the podcast on the One Sensational Shot network where we like to talk about the, the latest goings-on, the latest films we've managed to catch at the cinema uh, or indeed on the TV, whatever it might be, whatever just happens to uh, tickle our fancy that week. My name's Luke Littleboy and I'm joined as ever by my good co-host and very, very dear friend, Mr Fletcher Walton. Uh, it is a busy show. Uh, the Evening Glass, of course, is more, more of a casual just chat through the latest uh, things that we've been catching up with certainly this week i think you and i want to talk about baby driver there's also uh, the book of henry which uh, i managed to catch for all of the five minutes it was actually showing in uk cinemas and uh, i don't know fletcher if there's anything uh, anything that, that that's been happening in your life recently you wanted to update the dear listeners on it's been a few weeks and so i have done one or two things <laughs> last weekend we went out to wells the set of the hollywood blockbuster hot fuzz as is emblazoned in a blue plaque on the Crown Pub. Oh, cool. We turned up on a day where they had the market, so things didn't look quite like how they did in the film. But it was still such a trip, and it felt appropriate because of the release of Baby Driver. In fact, we had the opportunity to see Edgar Wright's new film at the tiny cinema in which Hot Fuzz had its world premiere in Wells. Mm. But we decided not to because it was a bloody wonderful summer's day on a bloody wonderful summer's weekend. So we went out and had dinner in a deserted hotel, which was a little bit overlooked. The following day went strawberry picking, PYO. Mm. That was bloody great as well. Made some jam a couple of days later. And if you're lucky, in a week's time, you might get some of Walton and Thorpe's own preserve. I may bring some up for you. We can have it for breakfast over toast. I'm sure that'll be very pleasant indeed. When you make jam, is it a bit like when you make a cake and then you realise all of the bad things that are in a cake... And you, it dawns on you, I should never eat a cake ever again as long as I live because there's you know, yeah. an entire tub of butter in here and that cannot be good. <laughs> it wasn't unlike that when we made banana bread about a month ago. A hell of a lot of butter went into it. And then this time making the jam, the mountain of sugar mm. was similar to the sugar episode of The Simpsons when he pulls a British man out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what episode I, that is now. He's it. it <laughs> I don't know either, but he's the sugar baron. He quotes Scarface. And the British man sipping tea with a bowler hat on says, yes, I got in there. For the moment, you let your guard down and I do it again. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I do remember what? that one now. I'm in the middle of a Simpsons rewatch project at the moment. And, and when I say in the middle, I think I mean literally in the middle because I'm in season five and I plan on drawing it to a close around season 10, season 11. Uh, but uh, but having said that, I was skipping ahead on Wikipedia, looking at what was coming up in eleven, twelve. There's always the odd episode that's you know you remember and you think you know what that wasn't that bad. Uh, so who uh, knows? Even a stop clock is right twice a day. I think they should have ended it around the time Phil died. Season nine was colossal. Ten was half good. Eleven and twelve were weak. And so since Phil went for me, I would have said. Take it till 12 by all means. And if you take it, if you finish it, then it goes out as the best sitcom 
one of the best programs, one of the most important pieces of pop culture of the post-war era. It's now done all of those episodes twice. That's how far removed we are from its peak. Yeah, I know. that. That's what um, shocked me again when I was going through uh, Wikipedia and IMDb. And it, it really... I mean, we all know how long The Simpsons has been on the air. But it dawned on me that there's more episodes of The Simpsons that I haven't seen than episodes that I have seen, which yeah. is astounding to me. But it's so, there's such wonderful moments. And uh, I just watched recently the um, uh, when I was in season three, like the Dustin Hoffman episode. Uh, as Lisa, yeah. Lisa's substitute teacher. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so moving because it's Dustin Hoffman, so he's completely charming, and you're completely charmed by the teacher anyway. And uh, when she, you know, seeing him away on the train, teary eyed, and it's almost like brief encounter or whatever, and he writes her a note and he says, Whenever you feel sad, whenever you feel down, whenever you don't know what to do, read this note. And she then bids him a, you know, very tearful farewell as he rides off in the train into the sunset and he says just read the note she opens the note up and it says you are lisa simpson it was so powerful it almost had me in tears like i'd I'd forgotten just how touching you know that that show was more often than not and um i have a similar experience with the episode old money which i'm sure that you watched quite recently that's Mm. the third season it's when b simmons leaves all the cash for grandpa that's it yeah and it has a, the transition. He he looked at the end of the episode, not knowing what to do with the money, having already interviewed the likes of Professor Frink with his death ray, which yeah. only has applications for evil. <laughs> 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 um, uh, Grandpa looks down at his withered, wrinkled hands, and it transitions to a shot showing that, of course, he spent all the money on the retirement cast. And he says, come on in, folks. Dignity's on me. Mm. And that, yeah, talking about that and remembering that and watching it certainly makes me teary-eyed. I'm so far removed from it now. I haven't. I was thinking about this the other day. I moved to America 2003. The first couple of years of uni, my parents kept taping it for me. So all through 2001-2 and 2002-3. Yeah. So by that point, by seasons 11, 12, and 13, one in five or six episodes was very good. I recall that The Great Money Caper, the episode that guest stars Ed Norton, all about grifting, for me that was the first terrible episode. I found nothing likeable in it. But it's been so long since I've watched them. And truthfully, my only uh, continuous period of viewing was November 97 to August 2001. Mm. So barely four years. But in that four years, I watched... Everything from season three to season nine or ten, and season three and f- seasons two, three and four did have a lot of heart. Still had proper plots. Yeah. Did that the um the episode where Bart fakes a pen pal relationship with Edna Mrs. Crabapple? Yeah. That's that that's felt. That is very heartfelt, yeah. And um, Homer and Marge, I can't remember what episode it's connected to, but Homer and Marge uh, on the bike at the end. Oh, Butch Cassidy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That's it. And uh, raindrops keep falling on my head. That's what they're singing. Mm. And that 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 real, I mean, some, call it schmaltzy if you want, but that that kind of um, very touching, you know, humour and, and, and the fact that it really did feel like an actual family that was going, that was facing life, death, and whatever, you know, else it might be. Um, together mm. and it, they felt like real, real. They really did feel like real characters. They would all re- act and react in a in a in a realistic way as befitting their uh, their character. But 
Yeah, it's uh, it definitely it's a shame, you know, lost its way. But um, hey ho, it's going to be the longest running show of all time. I think. I think it's beaten almost every record there is now, isn't isn't there? I think there's yeah. uh, there's maybe a couple shows in Japan that that have uh, <laughs> that have uh, been running since the fifties or something. Yeah, Flintstones went early in the run in the middle of season eight, Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie show. That was the longest running animated series scooby-doo briefly held the record when it came back then it was cancelled again and so simpsons overtook it shortly afterwards gunsmoke went i'm not sure how many years ago uh, and yeah i can't remember ago. the score with law and order but it predates law and order by a few months at least mm-hmm. and if you include the tracy Ullman shorts then even longer but it's it's a fun i suppose it's a fun rewatch it's been so formative on all of our comedy in general comedy of the 90s is so influenced by that dozen or so writers like Schwarzwelder. Yeah, absolutely. Kogan and Wolodarski, Conan O'Brien, those people that came out of the comedy scene in the late 80s and went to write for The Simpsons. Father Ted is in a lot of ways. Oh, very much so. It's a live yeah. action. They were doing cutaways and that kind of thing. Yeah, the Simpsons. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So what else have I been up to? I saw Vertigo at the Royal Festival Hall with a live orchestra. That must have been that phenomenal. A... It's one hell of a picture. Yeah, I... I saw it when I was about 15 and again sometime in my 20s. The one problem I had with it was that because it it was performed with an orchestra, it needed to have subtitles so that we could at all times still know what they were saying. Mm -hmm. So in a way, whenever I watch a film with subtitles in English language, it slightly takes away from the performance. I had this experience with Wynne when we saw Silver Linings Playbook or... Wait, what was the one in between? Silver Linings Playbook, Joy... What's the one in between? American Hustle. Mm. We went to see The Silver Linings or American Hustle and we hadn't checked the listings properly and it was an accessible performance. Yeah. So I had to I had to position my knees just below my eye line the whole time. Really? You can't just ignore that? <laughs> I, no, I find it... Well, the, number one, it's my job not to ignore it. <laughs> right, that's what I say. <laughs> but, but number two, no, I can't. Uh, I, and Sicario, when I saw Sicario, it had the same thing. But that was less of a problem because a good quarter or maybe even a third of the film is subtitled in because they're speaking in Spanish. Yeah, fair but enough. But with Vertigo, it's, there are many, many Hitchcock films where distracting subtitles would have provided a real problem. But with Vertigo, it's more about the mood, the atmosphere that's created. A lot of the dialogue is expositionary, doesn't give much away in terms of character, although the relationship between Jimmy Stewart's, Barbara Bel and Jimmy Stewart, I found really delightful as former f- old flames and current friends who care a lot about each other. And San Francisco, it, it was good to see that. I, I lived there for a period, as I've mentioned already. We saw Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, which unfortunately you weren't able to make. And of course, you didn't miss much that you haven't already had in your own living room a dozen times. Yeah, but you got but, to see it on a, a proper, uh, was it 35mm cut? Yeah, and as we always say, something about it being blown up to that size commands your attention, allows you to focus on smaller details than you that you may not have considered in the past, even details in the performance. And I, it's more about the focus that you have on a film when you're at the cinema. Phones off, no talking, nothing but the film to do for the next 90 minutes. Because when I'm at home, as you know, as you've experienced, I'll be up every 30 minutes either to put the washing in or take the washing out, make a cup of tea. I've just got to check this, go to the toilet. Watching a film with you at home is uh, an experience, I have to say that. 
it, there's plenty. And, there's plenty to take you out of the film when uh, you're watching yeah, with Fletcher yeah. Welton. You never realised that Die Hard with a Vengeance was four and a half hours long. How has your pop culture month been? Um, to tell you the truth, uh, it's been uh, it's, the Simpsons rewatch project has been part of it. We saw I saw the Book of Henry at the cinema as well, uh, and then I look forward to chatting to you in a bit about Baby Driver too. But uh, I can certainly talk to you about the Book of Henry because. That was um, a divisive film. Uh, I think it's probably pu- probably putting it as, as mildly as possible, isn't it? I d- what did you hear of the book of Henry on the grapevine, Fletcher? I wanted to frame the conversation with this quote from my friend and colleague, Aidan McCaffrey. The book of Henry is the worst film I've seen in my adult life. Discuss. <laughs> did he actually... Surely. Uh, did he conclude it with the word discuss? No, I've added that. Well, The Book of Henry, I think... So, so of course, it's directed by Colin Trevorrow, uh, who we know of Jurassic World fame. And prior to that, he did Safety Not Guaranteed, which was a little indie film that had a really interesting premise about uh, someone who responds to an ad in a newspaper, which says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, time travellers wanted, you know, no experience necessary. It ends with, I've only done this once before. It, d- it does, that, doesn't it? You're quite right. Yeah, it, the end of the original ad ended. Yeah, because it, it was an internet meme of some kind, wasn't it? That was yeah, uh, yeah. that that was a an ad that was in, in a paper. And uh, so that Colin Trevorrow uh, and Derek Connolly, his screenwriting partner, who went, went on to uh, write, write Jurassic World as well, then made this film, uh, Safety Not Guaranteed, uh, which was pretty enjoyable and you know it was it was a fairly solid film if not earth shattering it was it was certainly an interesting enough concept to keep you engaged and you know the performances were nice enough and you know had just the right level of whimsy uh Jurassic World obviously colossal and I wanted to keep a close eye on him as well because of course you know I also present our sister show uh, Local Trouble Star Wars podcast Colin Trevorrow has been announced as the director of Star Wars episode 9 so I'd have been remiss as a Jurassic Park and a Star Wars fan, not to check out the Book of Henry as well, not least because I enjoyed his work that wasn't connected to either of those franchises. So that's why I was looking forward to the Book of Henry. And like I said earlier in the podcast, I think I have to say, I think it was in the cinema for about all of five minutes. I, I'm lucky I caught it because it's been absolutely slated. It's got something like a 23% you know, average review on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, IMDb isn't much better. It's sort of at 5.7 as I'm sitting here reading it now. It's a really odd film and it um, stars Naomi Watts, who has uh, two small uh, children, uh, one of whom is sort of, I think, 11 year old boy genius, who is Henry. She str- sort of doesn't struggle to bring them up, but it's clear that Henry, the boy genius, is. He helps to raise the family as well in a certain sense, in terms of uh, he is doing things in the background with stocks and shares to make sure that the family are always, you know, have got lots of money in the bank. She struggles to grow up herself a little bit. Uh, she's a lovely, very loving mother. They all have a very good relationship together. But um, she sits up late at night playing computer games and maybe having a friend round and just drinking just a tad too much uh, and that kind of thing. So she's slightly slightly irresponsible, not not in a neglectful way at all but uh, certainly has had trouble growing up herself, whereas her 11-year-old boy genius son, Henry, is clearly streets ahead. That's where it kind of starts off, and it feels like an Amblin Entertainment film. It feels like he's really got that feeling that he tried to go for, especially in Jurassic World, and make it feel like an Amblin film from the 80s. It definitely feels a little bit timeless. There is technology, you know, the mother is playing an Xbox, but it's certainly 
all intents and purposes does feel like a fairly um, uh, timeless film. But I suppose what most people seem to be really upset with is that it's it's got these crazy tonal shifts. I think it's actually based on a on a on a novel, which and it's a crime novel, really. Uh, Greg um, Hurwitz, I think, uh, wrote it originally and uh, certainly helped write the script here. Um, long and short of it is, it just kind of shifts all over the place from being a schmaltzy 80s Amblin Entertainment film, kind of veering off into complete tragedy and, you know, re- a real tearjerker, and then going completely left field and becoming this strange little crime drama and I guess a lot of people think it doesn't feel that believable doesn't feel that realistic uh and doesn't feel like I think a lot of people saying they just don't really care about the characters and that kind of thing which which I suppose is as worse a criticism as you can ever get but I have to say the worst film of all time it ain't and you know I can forgive anything that's just trying to do something a bit different trying to do something um a little bit um out of the ordinary and failing I suppose ultimately because it's failed to connect with people there's not too much to talk about there it's completely failed to connect with people but it's not the worst film of all time and I think the, the fact that people have absolutely panned it I think seems to be a real shame and I think it would be really interesting to think I wonder if this is people just reading other reviews and then rolling with it I, I really don't know but I mean, I found it to be a fairly enjoyable film. It, there was, you know, it was, I broadly cared about where it was going, and I was very interested to see where it all ended up. And you know, it, it, by the end of the film, I was happy that the characters had resolved in the way they had, and I felt satisfied with that. I'm not saying it was like the Shawshank Redemption or anything, but, but uh, it was, mm. it was. Uh, the, the, I mean, you know, I don't see how in a world of four trans. Hold on, five Transformers films. <laughs> we can we can sit here and say the Book of Henry was just the worst thing you've ever seen in your adult life, personally. But that's that's my two cents on the Book of Henry, and it's a, it's a real shame. And I think it's lost money. I know that on the Star Wars uh, circuit, the Star Wars rumor mill, people are starting to say that Trevorrow is is going to be out of Episode Nine as a result of this, which I think is a real shame because. A, I don't quite believe it, pinch of salt because it's just a rumour, but B, he can clearly handle actors and 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 that kind of thing, and we know he can deliver special effects you know, through Jurassic World, so I, I wouldn't say this is any cause for uh, someone to um, you know, be, be sacked off of a big picture. Um, not, not least because, as we know, those big pictures, like the Star Wars films, are, are broadly made by committee anyway, and there's the, there is whole teams of people making sure that they look and feel like Star Wars films. So, uh, you know, I don't think it would be cause to sack him off of it. And I just feel a real sense of, you know, sh- you know pity for poor old Colin Trevorrow, who doesn't smile at the best of times. I challenge you to find a picture of Colin Trevorrow smiling. He just looks like the most <laughs> miserable man in all of Hollywood. But uh, he certainly is in touch with his inner child, and he was certainly trying to tap into something with this film that uh, just just failed failed a little bit, obviously, but 
man, 23% Rotten Tomatoes or whatever it is. It's, it's just, just not the case at all. I know that you haven't seen it, Fletch, so uh, maybe it remains to be seen when it's uh, on Sky TV or streaming or whatever. Maybe you and I can uh, hook up again and compare notes, maybe by the end of the year or something. Why do you suppose he took it? My first question about the entire enterprise when I saw its posters at cinemas was why has he bothered to take such a small-scale film which doesn't include any of the actors from Safety Not Guaranteed or from Jurassic World. It would make more sense if he was doing another, a smaller picture with Albie Plaza or Jake Johnson. This doesn't seem to have anybody he's worked with in the past to any significant level. So why? Yeah, that's I mean, not a why, bad. Why bother? Point. So it's been in development hell in various guises over the years. So Hurwitz wrote the, the very first draft of the screenplay way back in 1998. And the film, the film was optioned at the time. I think there was various people attached to produce. Um, I think that um, eventually Colin Trevorrow became connected to it. You know, many many years later, um, and I think that Trevorrow was going to be directing it before he took on Jurassic World. Jurassic World then came into his life, and that that took things over. So this was supposed to be the follow up to Safety Not Guaranteed. And I think the fact that it was, um, uh, you know, it would already been optioned as far back as 1998. It feels to me like there was just different people attached to it, a different team. Um, so he, he obviously, you know, wanted to pick this back up after he'd finished Jurassic World. Because don't forget as well, the blokes also uh, then written Jurassic World 2 with Derek Connolly. And he's exec produced that in addition. So... He was, he's doing, and then at the same time, he's prepping Star Wars Episode Nine. So he's mm. he's doing this little labour of love, the Book of Henry, in amongst all of that as well. So it feels to me like this is something that he wanted to keep alive, and he wanted to, he definitely was wanted to see it through, and he he wanted to get this produced. And I think that that's that's power to him. There's elements that do make sense to me. The late nineties context in which you've placed it makes me recall Simon Birch and The Mighty. Simon Birch is, well, as maligned as this film, in fact. Jim Carrey did a voiceover on it. Can't remember much about it. Joe Mazzello might have been in there somewhere, but essentially it's about an ill kid with problems. Mm. And The Mighty was much better received. I think it's by Peter Chelsom. Gillian Anderson, Sharon Stone, Meatloaf turns up. That's the one where uh, one of the Culkins is... uh, kind of crippled child who sits on the shoulders of Eldon Ratliff's character. They act as though it's a knight and his steed. Influenced by Camelot, they go along writing wrongs. So I I can see in that context why Hurwitz's book or screenplay would have been optioned or taken up almost 20 years ago. And then I understand as well that Trevorrow and Hurwitz are both San Franciscans. In a funny way, that's a little bit like the Zotrope situation, Mm. trying to keep it together with a, a similar... A similar mindset, I suppose, but I, you know, when you meant you mentioned it, but I had thought that Ryan Johnson was doing both eight and nine. When did that change? Ryan Johnson's written episode eight and directed episode eight, and he's also written the first draft of episode nine. And Trevorrow is uh, directing nine only. That right. was that was always the plan. Uh, Ryan Johnson was never going to direct nine, but he did he did write it alongside uh, episode eight. I suppose because, as we know from you know, Empire and Jedi back in the eighties, I'm assuming 
you know, the, the middle act will set things up to be knocked down in the final act. So I suppose that's why they, they wanted him to have a crack at writing episode nine as well. Reminds me, I know that Lee Brackett had a credit on Empire, but Kasdan wrote Empire and Jedi. Is that right? He certainly did. And he wrote Empire from the ground up. In fact, Lee Brackett, I don't think there's hardly anything in the Empire scripts uh, from, from Lee Brackett's draft. And, and, and um, she she died very sadly of cancer, didn't she? So I think George... Yeah left her name on there out of respect, a mark of respect to, to uh, still have have a screenwriting credit. Uh, but I think mm. there's elements like Yoda and that kind of thing, which George had in his initial uh, story treatment. Um, but it's very, uh, I think if you actually read the Lee Brackett draft, it's very, there's, it's very Knights of the Round Table. It's, it's very, very kind of uh, um, Arthurian sort of legend, uh, very different to the way Empire and Jedi then, then went eventually. Yeah. And moving on with Lawrence Kasdan, who seems it, it would seem is still able to swing his dick around Hollywood <laughs> and get people Phil- fired. <laughs> There's a little bit of cross pollination here, of course, and you will have gone through this with James Taylor on our sister podcast, Local Trouble. But I haven't yet heard your perspective on the firing of Lord and Miller from the Han Solo picture, seemingly at the request of. Good old Lawrence Kasdan, and this is what blows my mind. This is someone, as I said to McCaffrey at work, the last time he had credibility in the eyes of most in Hollywood would have been a full 20 years ago, and then, uh, well, sorry, a full 25 years ago, off the back of maybe Grand Canyon. Mm. And uh, Wyatt Earp did no decent business, especially when compared with Tombstone. And yet here we are, post-Mumford, which I liked, post-Dreamcatcher, which is risible. Lawrence Kasdan's calling the shots, so what's your reading of that? Yeah, it was weird, wasn't it? Um, I woke up one morning to just that really sterile statement from Lucasfilm saying that uh, Lord and Miller had parted ways, created difference, uh, creative differences were cited. Um, they managed to have their own statement in there as well, their own quote that sort of said, in this case, you know, creative differences is, is true and that's why we've left... Um, and it was odd because, you know, one minute it was all going great and there was that promo shot of the cast and Lord and Miller in the Millennium Falcon cockpit having, having a yeah. smile. And the next thing I knew, this had happened. Uh, so the the rumour, there's a really good Hollywood Reporter article and um, it is listed on the One Sensational Shot website if you go and look at the local Trouble Star Wars uh, section. Uh, so definitely go check that out. But various sources basically said that it was a case of I, th- I think a lot of it came down to a lot of the improvisation. So I think Lord and Miller have obviously had a lot of success previously with 21 Jump Street, with the Lego movie. You know, yeah. getting actors to improvise is something that you and I um, talked about or are going to be talking about. I can't remember where our production schedule is <laughs> for, uh, for for Anchorman and, you know, the, the tone that set for the future of the next 10, 20 years, of, essentially, of comedy. Yeah. And uh, I think that it wasn't just the comedy aspect, but I think they were trying to get, you know, trying to get people to... I think it's just how they get performances out of actors. And I think that there's a certain element of um, t- to be commended there. But I think that that strategy that seemed to work for them previously didn't seem to have worked as well for them this time. Because I think on the, de- the straw that broke the camel's back, they were supposed to be doing 15 shots in the Millennium Falcon, which had been pretty much prescribed by the producers... And by 1pm, they they themselves were still locked away in the physical Millennium Falcon cockpit set, having shot nothing. Then then finally came out at 1pm, shot some stuff in the afternoon, 
and uh, it was I think three four shots setups or whatever. It was it was far below the fifteen or so that um, the producers were expecting. Uh, so I think so this it, is a real culture clash. Then. It was a culture clash, yeah, because I think ultimately on these Star Wars films, as all the Marvel films or whatever, you know, they are they have they're huge. Uh, time is money. You've got so many people on that set. You know that you know for one minute of film, you know you know that there's going to be hundreds of people waiting to deliver and make that piece of you know second of cinema happen live on the set and i think yeah. that ma- i think maybe that they were just not working in the way that worked for them there has been a, a little bit said about um the performances um and Alden Ulrich apparently is the young han solo he allegedly some people have said that his performance they were they were trying to get him to emote more and more to the point where he was starting to seem like uh, ace ventura J- jim carrey style and uh, it was just very unhand solo and apparently it was Oldenreich who uh, who alerted uh, the producers to the fact that he didn't feel that comfortable playing the character the way that he ah. has done um and well, I think I think was... he draws a lot of water in Hollywood you might not do you know his background should I fill the listeners in yeah, on what no, my do, do, is of his background do go ahead go ahead he was featured in a wedding video he'd attended either a wedding or a bar mitzvah Footage was taken that found its way into the hands of Spielberg, who presumably puffing on a Ridley Scott style stogie said, I like this kid. He's got something. And in a way, I think Alden Ehrenreich has been slightly fast tracked to the Hollywood big leagues. Now, with the caveat that I think he's working with all the right people. First picture Tetro was with Coppola and Mm. worked with him again on Twixt. So he's definitely a San Franciscan, definitely that Northern California vibe that we've talked about with Lucasfilm and Zotrope. So he fits in, but he turns up in Blue Jasmine and gives an, a subpar performance, I recall remembering, in the cinema. Because by that point, I knew who he was because he'd been in films by Coppola. Coppola's big comeback. We're the sort of podcast that pays attention when Francis Ford Coppola makes a film. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really like him in Blue Jasmine. Coen Brothers, Hail Caesar, terrific in that. Yeah, now, fantastic, yeah. But um, with Aaron Reich, I wonder if he's been selected. People don't, out of the blocks, work with Coppola twice, Woody Allen and the Coen Brothers within five or six years. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. Uh, and over the course of only seven or eight pictures and then get to be Han Solo. Now, from what I've seen, he has the performances to back it up. Uh, and I definitely, it wouldn't surprise me if he's the sort of bloke who can say, excuse me, I'm not dealing with this. And they say, oh, OK. And, and they step in and... It's really interesting. I would say he's bigger than that. Lord and Miller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you reckon? Yeah, it's really interesting that you should say all that. I think the background is really interesting. And um, I do know that they they had hired an acting coach for him, uh, which isn't unusual, as we know. You know, a lot, a lot of people have dialogue coaches on set or acting coaches on set. Um, mm. But but clearly he was not comfortable with with the way that that direction was going down. The one thing I'd say about casting as well is that I, I appreciate what you're saying that he hasn't necessarily had the clout in Hollywood for uh, a number of years now. However, we mustn't forget that he didn't come back on board. You know, George asked him to write Phantom Menace and he turned it down. He was directing at that time and he didn't want to get back involved in Star Wars, especially if it was George's baby. He got back involved with Star Wars when Kennedy was finally on board, not mm. to do The Force Awakens with J.J. Abrams. He got on board to do this Han Solo film with his son. Oh, right. Okay. This is what. This is why he was... This is why we even have a Lawrence Caston written Force Awakens. You know, it's because of the Han Solo movie. And I think if they were then riffing 
um, off on different tangents and getting people to improvise and going off script, that, that could very well be something that was um, upsetting him. And also, at the end of the day, don't forget the, the credibility that he has in Star Wars fan circles is tremendous, you know, and, and yeah. like, he, he, you know, as far as Star Wars fans are concerned, Lawrence Kasdan is God. And uh, and I think that uh, you know maybe maybe there's an element of that of that too. But but certainly I would say that this is his pet project. He's written with his son, and it's no yeah. wonder that he he therefore was keeping a closer eye on it than he would have done. I'm getting swept up by the intrigue now. When you say Lawrence Kasdan's son, in this case you're talking about John rather than Jake. Now Jake Kasdan is steeped in improvisational comedy, having directed Orange County mm. TV set, Walk Hard, Bad Teacher. It's true. So they they didn't go with Jake; they went with John, the lesser known son. Mm. And it's funny as well. We've talked about the improvisations and how some some actors may not have been comfortable with the level of improvisation required how Lord and Miller were spending a long time. And then who should they bring in as the new director but Ronnie Howard, the mm. director who, not a couple of weeks ago, you told us, <laughs> turned up to the audition for Lucas on American Graffiti mm. and was surprised to be asked to improvise. So who better to bring in than somebody who doesn't... <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know how, but we're still talking about the same names. After 40 years, yeah. forty maybe even 45 years of films involving George Lucas... We still go back to Ronnie Howard and Lawrence Kasdan. <laughs> well, what's funny as well is that Kathleen Kennedy was interviewed by the Hollywood Reporter after the fact, and she said one of the things I've learned is that you, as well as sort of creative skills, one of the things we need is um, leadership skills. And yeah. I think what they've realised is for these pictures, it's all very well and good thinking I'm going to get a young creative director who maybe they can tell what to do or not. I don't know if that's the thinking behind it, or at the very least we'll get something that's really out there, has a real distinct vision, and then we'll fix it in post. I don't know. But they've realised that I think that this is, these films are like leading a small army, you know, through, mm. through no man's land, and you do need leadership skills there, which is why they're bringing on someone like Ronnie Howard who can rally the troops and bring it in on time, on budget, uh, you know with a, a film that looks and feels like a film, you know, has, has a narrative and has a thread and you, it's, it, it, it's perfectly serviceable. I think Ron Howard is the benign form of a Hollywood director. I don't consider him a hack in the same way that I've reservations about Pete Hyams or Taylor Hackford. It's been a long time since I've enjoyed many Ron Howard films. I think Frost Nixon is excellent. Yeah, it's great. Enough, yeah. I think that fell outside of the top hundred for its box office year underseen but excellent film and i did i chimed with in in the heart of the sea alex and i went to see in the heart of the sea it's maybe not more than a three out of five film i i fell into its groove i didn't for the dilemma for instance no the dilemma's not for me and then for the last decade it's been robert langdon robert langdon robert langdon so i suppose i'm excited now that ron howard is in charge of a star wars film he can he can do comedy he's the man behind splash Parenthood is truly one of my favourite, one of my favourite conventional comedies. If we take our improvisational style in terms of Hollywood comedy, you know, from His Girl Friday up to now, mm. Parenthood is one of my favourites. We'll see what happens. But thank you for filling me in on your take on it. In my mind, it's without precedent, if not almost without precedent. 
films aren't meant to work like this. You don't take away the... Uh, now, Coppola did it on Supernova. Walter Hill was behind that. He got binned, and Coppola came in to finish it off. But what's happening with this Star Wars film is not normal. It's not normal, and what I think is quite funny as well is that when there are people out there online who say, oh, don't be, don't be such a reactionary, don't be an alarmist, this does happen. This happened on The Wizard of Oz and on Gone with the Wind, and... And I think you can't just list examples from the 30s where the, produ- where, yeah. the where the producer ran the show. Yeah. And and this is this is what we have now. Like, you know, Lucas and Coppola came in the 70s. They in New Hollywood, they made the director the king again and and it, and it was the director's vision. Uh and you know, therefore that the whole notion of auteur cinema all this kind of thing which we've spoken about at length. And I think now you've got Kathy Kennedy there at the top. There's a board of investors to impress uh, and they want to see a return on investment for the four billion they've shelled out for this sci-fi property. And therefore, this ship has to be run in a very tight way and and things have to be delivered. And uh, this is is Josh Brolin running around in Hell Caesar trying to keep it all afloat and and sort it all out. (laughs) This is Kathy Kennedy coming down with an iron fist and saying, I'm sorry, guys, you you have to go. Uh, Just, Mm. you know, as they're throwing an artistic paddy or whatever about... So, yeah, it's it's the way... we're, We're going back to how things were... In the 30s and the 40s, I think things at stake now, big budgets at stake. If you if you make one false move with, because uh, George didn't care if Phantom Menace hadn't made the money back, he'd have finished it off some other way, or he'd have just you know cut the budgets down or whatever he would have done. He'd have just done his own thing anyway. Whereas now this could be the nail in a coffin for something. Do you know what I mean? This is mm. uh, this is an investment and it's a business decision, and these things have to go down right. Bubble's got a burst. There's a lot of big things at the moment where I feel that they just cannot continue forever. The Premier League is one of them. It's been more than 15 years now. It has to burst soon. And in Hollywood, the mega franchises, it cannot. It simply cannot continue in perpetuity. The age of the mega franchise has run six or seven years, I suppose. Iron Man was 2008, I believe. So that was 10 years ago next year. But it wasn't until a couple of pictures after that first Marvel film that it became clear that they can keep doing this. Mm. And we've talked about Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and to an extent the prequels kicking this off at the end of the last century and the beginning of this century. And that was the the first Pirates was 2003, I think. Yeah, and that's still going. But some, at some point, one of these has to fail in the way that Heaven's Gate tanked, Sorcerer tanked, one from the heart tanked Mm. and some incredible stories are there to be told it won't be in the next five years but when this bubble bursts by 2030 the people who are are by then in their 80s they'll be telling us the real deal on how this and when it does i mean we should think about this in in global terms as well if disney's hit hard that probably hits you and i in our pocket at tesco Mm. Or when we go down the pub, because there's only seven, there's only now seven companies and they own everything. It's become like idiocracy. Mm. It's a bit like when Mel Brooks referred to Gulf and Western as Engulf and Western. Yeah. Because <laughs> they were, they were an, an 
I'm fascinated by the gender politics of it. I'm interested in Kathy Kennedy's story, whether this makes her look weak or look strong. One of these big, big franchises has to have has to have an instalment that fails and costs 150 or 180 and somehow takes 80 or 90. And I don't want it to be this one. I like the people involved in this. I'd like to see a, a new set of actors. I'd like to see the um, coronation of Alden Ehrenreich and Donald Glover. Who else is in there? I was just trying to think um, what has failed this time round. Well, there's been a few, hasn't there? This 2017, I think, will go down as the summer where a lot of these pictures didn't make the money they were supposed to. I'm just running through now. Power Rangers, The Mummy, I think Alien Covenant as well. It didn't really do what it was supposed to do. Then there's... Right. I know they're not big franchise pictures, but there's, there's the likes of The Great Wall... Um, I think the re- oh, that yeah, that's a really good point. Now, yeah, triple, they're not tri- franchise pictures. Triple X trying to do something. Triple X, the return oh, of Xander Cage. Come out. Yeah, yeah, I think it's been and gone. Oh, yeah, I didn't even, didn't even know. And with the Mummy, it's meant to be part of a franchise. They're world building. It's their intention to create a stable of Universal monsters: Frankenstein's monster, the Mummy, Dracula, Wolfman. And we've now got a, a Spider-Man reboot. And on on that note that you know you just mentioned, if you if you recall, the film that underperformed and led to this third reboot of Spider-Man, it was uh, Amazing Spider-Man Two, which again was supposed to be world building and was really bloated and was just hinting at things to come in spin-off films. Yeah, which all of which were for naught. So that film was a complete and utter waste of time. King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. I believe that was supposed to be the beginnings of some kind of platform. Co- uh, You're Co- right. Kong Skull Island. I think that was another one that. Yes, that uh, with that one, it's that's the follow up uh, to yeah. that's the MonsterVerse, and that's the follow up to Gareth Edwards' uh, um, Godzilla. You've provided a really good rejoinder to what I was saying. You're right. There's been a lot of would-be franchise pictures that have fallen at the first hurdle. I suppose Man From U.N.C.L.E. might be another one. I don't know how Guy Ritchie keeps getting gigs. Mm. Sherlock Holmes, both of those did well. It was a surprise that he came back from Swept Away and Revolver at all. Mm. Then Rock and Roller, which was modest, but people enjoyed it. Yeah, the Sherlock Holmes films did big, big business, and for a while Robert Downey had a couple of franchises going. But Man From U.N.C.L.E. was underseen... And unliked. I haven't yet thought oh, it, it I, might be good. I quite enjoyed it. I think that had its fans, Man From U.N.C.L.E. I don't think everyone everyone minded it. But I think it wasn't... Is it fair to say it wasn't the hit that they hoped for? And then again with King Arthur. I mean, King Arthur is just completely... I think people have complete disdain for it. Like, they really, really do. So what I suppose I want to see... Yeah, you want to see I, the I Marvel film breath. That, that fails... Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I probably shouldn't hope for it because it will put us out of jobs. I, I presume that the the entire world economy in 2021 will be predicated upon the success of Pixar, Disney, Lucasfilm, Marvel pictures. <laughs> and if any of them go wrong, then it's, as you always say, you know, it's going to be instant mash for all of us <laughs> in the foreseeable future. But I'd like to see what would happen if a Pirates film made for 180 or 200 plus advertising and it only took 100 because remember Waterworld broke even globally yeah and that was that was and still is regarded as an uber turkey not a bad film over long certainly Costner shouldn't have taken it out of Reynolds hands but it's a good action picture it's kind of weird it, it and I don't know if it has a point of view but it's a little bit odd in the way that those kind of chaotic films like Island of Dr Moreau 
you keep watching thinking this is mad yeah, it, yeah, yeah. What what more mad stuff can happen in this film? Where was that oversight? Did it have producers? Waterworld does get a little bit like that. So Waterworld broke even and is still seen as something that underperformed. Mm. But I want to see a, a colossal flop. What was the one? Now this is going back ten or twelve years. Did they? Was there meant to be a franchise around the Golden Compass? Yeah, there was, and uh, that went nowhere. And I, that was one yeah. of the first. I remember that was one of the first films I saw where I was really starting to get fatigued because there was no mm. e- there was no ending, and it was so open ended. It didn't feel like a film, you know. It just felt like it was setting stuff up, and uh, we see that more and more now. But I do remember Golden Compass was one of the first ones where I really felt that way. I was just like, oh, for God's sake! And it, what a colossal waste of my time. That it's not. I'm not even yeah. going to get the ending of the story. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like when a, a series is cancelled after 18 episodes, but they plan for 22. At least with Freaks and Geeks, for instance, they saw their cancellation coming and began to divide up the remaining budget across not three or four episodes, but five or six, so they could get in the can everything that they needed to tell their story. But Golden Compass, it made double its budget. It's just that these days. There's the budget, and then there's the actual budget, which is add on another, I don't know, we'd need to speak to someone more educated than I on the subject, but add on another 40 million, 50 million for advertising and all of this. The other example is the C.S. Lewis books. So I think they made three, and I think they made the three that have that cast of characters in. I could be oh, wrong. Oh yeah, I read the books a lot. Yeah, you're right. I'm yeah. not a C.S. Lewis uh, fan or anything, but I, I think they made the three that, that had that cast of characters in, um, yeah. and and there's, I guess Liam Neeson is Aslan the Lion. Arguably, he should be in other pictures as well because he, you know, he he he's across more. But yeah, you're right. I think that you know what I think the third one. In fact, so I think the first two were distributed by Disney. I think by the third one, Disney didn't even touch it. I think it had the same cast and producers attached, but it was not distributed by Disney. And they're all still making shed loads of money. Yeah. But there there's no chat about them, and I think we've definitely in this decade. And as we move into the next decade, we've definitely entered an arena in which 500 million isn't enough. They want 0.8 of a billion. Yeah, so I think Superman Returns uh, made 300 million, but that that wasn't enough. It, it needed more, and then that's when they rebooted it into, well, what's ultimately now the DC universe, isn't it? Because they, they did Man of Steel and went on from there. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, I think there's some articles online with Lucas and Spielberg talking at an event, um, and I believe that they sort of pr- predicted this. I wonder if, in part, Lucas knew. Like, because he's, he's a businessman at the end of the day, a very sh- shrewd mm. one as well, and it, it almost feels to me like he, he realised that the films were getting more and more expensive, there was more and more risk involved just to get the kind of same sort of return ultimately. I wonder if he just thought, you know what, this is all over. I don't need any of this. Uh, And, you know, no one, you know, one day it's going to be really difficult to not make money out of this, but but be guaranteed to, you know, get your return on investment. So uh, there's too much risk involved, it's too big. So this whole thing's going to implode. I'm I'm out. (laughs) And that was that. Yeah, The, the numbers around it fascinate me. But the problem I have is that I'm so unable to engage with what are essentially children's films or, if we're being really generous, young adult orientated films. Mm. So when we speak about the cinema of the 70s, it's easy for me to get psyched about Taxi Driver, Mm. Apocalypse Now, Empire Strikes Back. Those are... Those are films for the cons- to be consumed by adults. With these pictures, I, I don't. I, uh, I've seen so few of the Marvel films. 
The Chronicles of Narnia, Fast and the Furious, all of the big franchises, Harry Potter. I've seen only two or three of most of those. And the, the, the filmmaking doesn't appeal to me. The stories they tell aren't appealing to me. But I, I, I find it so tough to engage with them because they're boring to me. But the stories around them, and I, I really need to educate myself because they're as important as understanding how the iPhone 7 was developed or what it means, you know, what Brexit means to this country, if it happens or if it doesn't. Mm. I, I do think movies are that big now. And it, it's gross, but it's as important as... If Manchester United went into bankruptcy a week from now, yeah, 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 I don't. That disagree. would shake. That would shake the globe. It wouldn't just be, oh well, there's one less team in the Premier League. <laughs> a chilling foresight of things to come, <laughs> in the words of Kent Brockman. But onto something a little more fun, Fletch. I wanted to say I, I had something to tell you. My daddy was the family baseman. My mama was an engineer, and I was born one dark grey morn with music coming in my ears. In my ears, they call me Baby Driver. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Right now, I got to tell you about the fabulous, most groovy Bill Bottom. Bill Bottom. What a moment that was. So, Baby Driver, it's been a long time in gestation. Uh, of course, sitting in his... Oh, the longest time. Sitting in his North London flat, Edgar Wright was, uh, you know, thinking about this for a very long time. You know, thinking about how that could be developed into a car chase soundtrack, completely in sync with the music. So, uh, th- this is the fruits of someone who... Came off of Ant Man, don't forget as well. Uh, this, so, yeah. so he was he was hired to write and direct Ant Man along with Joe Cornish, someone that we're we're a fan of over the years through the Adam and Joe show back in the nineties. Yeah, and uh, if only our podcast could be as accomplished as theirs. Eh? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> one day, so, one day. So, and then yeah, and then it all went all went south. Uh, he fell out with Marvel. Well, I don't think fell out, but obviously, obviously his. his artistic vision and did not chime with I think basically the way it went down Marvel said okay we like what you've done there we're going to take another pass at that with someone else and then yeah. then we'll meet up and compare notes and I think <laughs> Edgar Wright said what? <laughs> no yeah, it all feels like to me it all feels like Coen Brothers uh, Michael Lerner telling Barton Fink I need a writer who can give me that Barton Fink feeling and then by the end of the picture saying I've got a hundred writers that can give me that Barton Fink feeling. Yeah. And you wonder, w- w- why did you hire this guy in the first place? You saw Shaun of the Dead. You saw Hot Fuzz. You know he's got a real authorial presence. You know that in his pictures, you're going to get aspects of Bristol turntablism from the 90s. Mm-hmm. There will be John Spencer Blues Explosion. The The soundtrack will be of tremendous importance. Shots of... <laughs> Sam, basically Sam Raimi, but 
either on a domestic scale or blown up even larger. Yeah, yeah. And they dabble, don't they, executives? I'm, it's the same as in the 70s. They think, yeah, we want Billy Friedkin. Whoa, no, we don't want him spending all our money. Gosh. <laughs> oh, that's not going to work. Or Michael Cimino. Yeah, just keep going with, what are you doing out there in Montana with Heaven's Gate? Good Lord. <laughs> This is a studio. You don't know. No, we, we wanted artistry. We didn't want artistry by an artist. No, they cost a lot of money. He hold, I know he holds no ill feeling on Ant-Man. I haven't yet. Did you watch it? Again, I haven't even seen it. I still haven't seen Ant-Man. I checked out of the Marvel films um, just after the first Avengers movie. Uh, and I, ha- I have seen one or two oh. others. I've seen, I've seen, when they've come on the telly, I've seen Captain America, Civil War... Uh, which wasn't too bad. That was actually pretty decent. That was all all the president's men style, uh, to the point where they actually have Robert Redford as the uh, as the baddie. But uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I watched the odd Marvel film. Ant Man's one that I haven't seen. I've sat there with my finger hovered over the button about to stream it and and watch it on uh, on <laughs> on the one of the streaming services, the now the now TV. But uh, they, I've, no, I just haven't haven't managed to do it. I did watch the new Guardians at the cinema and enjoyed that enough, you know. But yeah. no, I have not seen Ant Man. I I do know from from what I've read that there are some ideas in there of Edgar's that still somehow seem to be in there. I think he may even retain a screenwriting credit along with Joe Cornish, but I'd need to Google that. Yeah, for Ant Man, he does. Yeah, you remind me of. Uh... YouTube comment I read earlier today while I was listening to parts of the soundtrack for Baby Driver. The comment is Marvel fanboy, Guardians of the Galaxy has such a great soundtrack. Edgar Wright, hold my beer. <laughs> and it's it's colossal. The first thing that hit, as it will be for anybody that watches the picture, the first thing that will hit you about Baby Driver is its relentless use of music. I feel as though I'm in Ed's living room or possibly up in his attic, and he's taken me up there and said, listen, I've got this one from 1993 that you're really going to dig. If I can just... It's a crate diggers film. Yeah. Choice of music is so expansive, and it really is Bristolian to me. As fans of Edgar Wright, we know we're not going to get Jump Around by House of Pain, but Square's out there when it goes, dun, 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 dun. Mm. They're thinking they're going to get House of Pain. Yeah. And no, it's the original version, except it's been slightly augmented by some... New shit by a new DJ. There's so many, at six or, no, five or six times in that picture, you hear the originator of the sample that you know from whichever Jay-Z track it was or whichever Nas track. Mm. Ah, and just that was delicious. Just that was, I get to spend another hundred minutes with Edgar Wright in the company of Edgar Wright. Impeccable taste, interesting taste. Those three films and Scott Pilgrim, so those four films, uh, they're important to us. They didn't do a lot of business. I think we probably don't realise that they're not that well known. Yeah, I think even Scott Pilgrim isn't. It didn't set the world alight, did it? I think I. I, yeah. I don't know if it lost money, but it didn't do what it was supposed to do. I think it's only become a cult classic since. I mean, I was there. I remember being in a pretty packed auditorium watching uh, Scott Pilgrim, but uh, but yeah, and it had me immediately when the Universal logo comes up like on a Mega Drive. Yeah. Yeah, there was lots Get of moments out. like that. I mean, the soundtrack there I was. I swore, phenomenal. I swore to my friend, and oh, we're gonna have a, we're, this is gonna be a great time. Yeah, Christ alive! <laughs> a lot of the music there was straight out of Nintendo. It was uh, Koji Kondo stuff, wasn't it? So, yeah, so, there would be the the Zelda music from when, uh, I I I think the. I'm, oh, I'm going to be crucified now because I haven't seen it in a few years. But there was little Zelda melodies from when you're 
in the game, you know, about to be healed, uh, but when you're yeah. in one of the magic trees about to be healed, or, or when you, he picks up an item, there's the little fanfare, things like that. It was absolutely beautiful. And Koji Kon... And then, the, like... Go on. The production and the production of the soundtrack and the supervisor on it was Godric, I think, who worked with Radiohead and Beck wrote some of the songs. And as Baby Driver kicks off with Bell Bottoms, I remembered, of course, yeah, John Spencer wrote the tiny snippets of screamy music at the uh, at the end of Hot Fuzz when all of the Neighbourhood Watch Alliance are being booked and it's going like, wow, you're going to jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just did little things like that. And um, as we talk about often, and as I, I made sure we took a detour on the way back from Wells to go to Heston Services <laughs> because of Hot Fuzz. But um, Robert Rodriguez wrote the score for the Heston Services part of Hot Fuzz, which includes that, Character actor you love, the bloke from the 118118 adverts, mm-hmm. Colin Michael Carmichael, I think his name mm-hmm. is. Baby Driver was a film that was so enjoyable for me that I almost forgot the repetition of Ed's particular interests, like John Spencer Blues Explosion, mm-hmm. the, the turntablist aspects, that odd credit card sampling machine. Baby goes back to his apartment and is creating a track out of loops, mm-hmm. plays his dictaphone and somehow records it onto something the size of a credit card runs that through a card reader, which then imprints it onto, I don't know what, it's tech that I don't, but it's very analogue oh, and double, enjoyable for I'll it. I'll have to double check that. So I've, that's I've, how he makes the retarded means slow. Was he slow? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've seen it the once, and I definitely need to try and catch it a second time at the very least whilst it's still at the cinema. It was, it was great. It certainly had me at the moment where he was in the diner and he meets uh, Carla Thomas's character. Uh, sorry, they're playing the Carla Thomas song, Baby, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it's Deborah, of course, uh, the sort of the future lover's life, love lover, live a love interest um, for the film, and they're playing uh, the Beach Boys, Let's Go Away for a While, uh, instrumental. Oh, it, yeah. It's an instrumental track from Pet Sounds, no Beach Boys vocals, but of course that's when they're they're talking about wanting to get away and uh and, and get the hell out of there and uh, i instantly as soon as the scene began i thought this is going to be this is going to be great uh and i suppose if, if i had any any criticism at all it could be that you know the the love story was maybe slightly under underwritten you know she doesn't have much of a backstory uh but i suppose what they're going for is kind of an archetype it's supposed to be an old Hollywood romance. I think, to a certain extent, you are supposed to accept that they they are they do love each other, and and that they're the only way that either one of them can get out of this situation in the, in mm. the film. So that I did give it a lot of leeway there, where I was like, this isn't supposed to be entirely literal. You know, this is we're dealing with archetypes to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. we we can't forget that Edgar Wright is a genre director at a time when genre has been lost at the multiplex. To an extent, we have action films. What it harks back to for me is obviously the work of Walter Hill, The Driver and Streets of Fire. Streets of Fire is a mid-80s rock opera musical action picture with Diane Lane and Michael Paré. Bill Paxton turns up in it, cast of thousands, Willem Dafoe, loads of people that you'd know before they were well known. Mm. That was about 1984 and it uses Jim Steinman and Jim Steinman-like music all the way through. Now you like Meatloaf, don't you? Yeah, I do. And, I do. I... And it's, but, but, but particularly you like Rocky Horror. I like Rocky Horror. I like the first Meatloaf 
uh, album and above all else I like Jim Steinman's strange follow-up album which does not have any meatloaf on it uh, uh, Bad for Good which is a very a little known 80s uh, operatic rock album with Jim Steinman singing and he does not match the power of the meatloaf vocal therefore it's uh, yeah. it's uh, since it's a since it's one of those great almost outsider art pieces where it's someone uh, someone very sincerely trying to deliver a, a certain kind of uh, art you know in this case overblown rock opera and failing miserably yeah. with his weedy vocal but <laughs> clearly just wanting to go go for it <laughs> and do it Sorry, I just railroaded you there, but uh, that's no, no, that's a footnote. I, I, for I asked people. you to. I'll find that. I'll, uh, I'll find that on YouTube if I'm able. Then. Yeah, I would certainly uh, urge you to go. Jim Steinman, bad for good. Walter Hill often paired himself with Ry Cooder for the scores and soundtracks of his films, and Ry Cooder works a little bit on Streets of Fire. Baby Driver reminded me of that, and also Walter Hill's The Driver with Ryan O'Neill and Bruce Dern. All of this was with the blessing of him. My point being that genre has always been denigrated but at the moment doesn't even seem to have its proper place at the multiplex. Mm. If you compare it to pictures of the 80s that we grew up with, 48 Hours, The Terminator, Predator, I suppose, as well. That was only McTiernan's second film. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know certain characters seem to be maybe a bit underwritten or, or, or are lacking a backstory, but I think we're dealing with archetypes, and I think, yeah, I think you're right yeah. that the, he, Edgar Wright is a genre filmmaker. Shaun of the Dead was horror. Hot Fuzz was a buddy cop comedy actioner the world's end is definitely sci-fi scott pilgrim's an interesting one i suppose it's i mean that that that's an adaptation coming of age comedy yeah and it's an adaptation there's source material with scott pilgrim you know at the end of the day the most glaring decision is that it's a comic book movie but done as a video game movie it might be the best video game movie that's ever been made Mm. but it's not based on a video game it's based on a comic book and it might also be one of the best comic book movies ever made but it isn't done in that style it's visual style as we said from the very beginning as the credits roll and the universal globe appears in 16 bit it's a video game adaptation Mm. but were you i mean honestly it was a visceral experience it was wholeheartedly original in its approach i he's, he's done an action this is the thing he's done an action musical this is a new type of musical i know you like musical films yeah i generally don't i like little shop of horrors blues brothers is one of my favorite films but it's barely a musical there's only a couple of sequences where people break into songs spontaneously baby driver for me is a new kind of approach to a musical where the music is foregrounded and characters do interact with it but they don't sing in the conventional style so particularly the um the scene in which he gets coffee now that harked back to spaced for me that scene in particular and the film in general was like edgar wright directing a whole 90 minutes about tires from space played by michael smiley mm. who if you remember 
Here's everything around in the kettle boiling, the doorbell ringing, the tapping of a pen, the button on the pedestrian crossing, beep, 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 and starts dancing. That's what that particular sequence reminded me of. We should mention as well, I don't know if you've yet seen it, but I posted it to our Facebook page. Baby Driver is essentially a spin-off of Edgar's video for Mint Royale's track, Blue Song, mm. and, and features in the film as well. Noel Fielding, Julian Barrett, Mike Smiley, and Nick Frost. Yeah, yeah. And all of Baby Driver comes from that, as though, as is often the case, and we've talked about it, how directors have dry runs or will repeat their own interest again and again. David Lynch is particularly good at that, and I haven't kept up with Twin Peaks, but next time, hopefully I've seen a few more and we can talk about what you've been hinting at when you've said Fletcher, oh my God. Ed, early on in his career, before Shaun of the Dead, had the idea for Baby Driver, had vague notions of a bank robber who soundtracked the heist with pop songs, didn't know if he'd ever get to make that, and so instead turned it into a really fun music video. The opening of Baby Driver is exactly the same as the music video, but without Noel Fielding, so can't have everything. But uh, they wear the same coats, even. A lot lot of people are talking about how great that choreographed sequence is when he's picking up the coffee just just after the... um, Obviously, after the the big... uh, car chase at the beginning as well with uh, yeah. um, the the blues explosion but um it it's so tightly choreographed it is wholeheartedly sort of original in its approach i did i did think i had echoes of american graffiti with that kind of you know walter murch uh the, the worldizing of the music uh yeah. it, it, so the music's in the world obviously baby's listening to it at the same time so we're hearing what he's hearing uh and and that's you know uh setting the pulse and, and setting the the pulse rate of the film uh, however, compared to the Cornetto trilogy, for example, and and even um, Scott Pilgrim as well, would you say? And I'm being hypercritical here for one moment. Characters at the foreground, it just lacked the heart that you know you do get in Shaun of the Dead. The characters were more were drawn more broadly, weren't they? It expressed well and conveyed above all else. They were criminals. Yeah, they were charismatic, but they are criminals. They're nasty bastards. It didn't romanticise them. It does lack a bit of heart. I was all right with the character of Baby. What I found most appealing was, at first, with constant headphones, the shades, all of these affectations, I was prepared to dislike him as representative of the hood-up, headphones-in mentality that young people have mm. in 2017. I, I would count myself out of that, but it's uh, culture at the moment for me is too narcissistic, self-orientated. People are very unwilling to move the blinkers and look around them. I wondered whether Baby would be a character like that, but then very quickly, almost too quickly, because it was slightly expositionary, it was established that there were reasons for all of these affectations. And he wasn't Asperger's, he wasn't a Rain Man kind of character, perfectly capable of carrying a conversation. Yeah, he dropped a lot of movie quotes, but then that's the Edgar Wright milieu, isn't it? That's what we've had ever since Shaun of the Dead and Spaced and probably even Asylum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I like I liked him as a character. I didn't find him off-putting. I was ready to be irritated by him, actually. Because, I mean, you know, the other thing is that he's, what, like, 21 years old, beautiful Hollywood actor. I like Grizzled, like Walter Hill leads, like Nick Nolte or Powers Booth. Men, real men that drink as soon as they wake up. <laughs> as you As you said... These people that are playing guitars at parties, I'm just there to drink as much as I can. (laughs) 
Yeah, uh, the supporting cast, you gave some honourable mentions. Kevin Spacey was fantastic. Jamie Foxx, I thought, that was really strong stuff. Yeah. Really terrifying. And John Hamm, you know what? I often think he's fairly miscast in, in the, odd, the odd thing that's outside of Mad Men. Um, especially, I'm, I never really like him in comedic roles, John Hamm. I, I don't know why. Yeah. But uh, in this, he was wonderfully deranged. Utterly fantastic in, in everything that everything he did in that in that last act. Uh, I suppose we should be somewhat careful of spoilers, but that last um, electrifying act, he's uh, phenomenal in. And um, Kevin Spacey, there is something strangely paternal about uh, about Mr. Kevin Spacey and his character of Doc. Uh, and of course, um, that does you know have some dividends uh, you know late, later on in the film as well. So after what has been a summer of you know I, we listed a few films um, earlier on that that. The Mummy and and things that you just don't want to go see. It was good to good to have a a film like Baby Driver that uh, was just right out of the gate. Uh, it just made you happy to be watching a film, you know, full stop. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I just I really looked forward to putting together my playlist or listening to the soundtrack or, or whatever, and yeah. and just really starting to live the film inside and out as well. And it was an illustration of the concerns and interests. Of its creator. That is an Edgar Wright film. Everything about it says Edgar Wright. You talked about the conversation that's soundtracked by the Beach Boys. Let's go so, away for a while. Yeah. But what they're talking about when he says Metteridge AC Penny, I thought they really are talking about the Beck track Deborah from Midnight Vultures. Yeah. Yeah. The album which spawned Sex Laws. Now everybody knows that single, and I realised, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, because Beck did the music for Scott Pilgrim, and this is Edgar Wright world. This is as in, in a way, it's a less affectational, as accessible version of the Tarantino verse. He's our Quentin Tarantino. And in a way, he's more interesting and slightly more mature, I suppose. Baby Driver is a director's film. It's all about the challenges of framing that action and even achieving that action, getting reducing the set pieces down to two and a half minutes. Increasingly, over the last 10, 15 years, action films and mainstream blockbuster cinema, Pirates of the Caribbean, Fast and the Furious, the set pieces go on for a very long time. And it's as though Edgar Wright has seen that and has disciplined himself by limiting them intentionally to Neat Neat Neat, for instance, which is only two and a half minutes. I just forgot, don't forget, he does play, he does start the song again from the beginning. Oh, there is that. Yeah, there is that as well. Uh, yeah. Also, so they cheat sometimes, all, but that's that's a really good reducer. It's a really good limiter. Also, um, just as a very general point, any film that has "Neat, Neat, Neat" by The Damned in its soundtrack yeah. is is all right in my book. And by God, if that's yeah. not one hell of a tune, uh, just the minute you hear those drums kicking at the beginning and uh, the way they made those guitars really sound like buzz saws. Damned are one of my favourite mm. punk bands of all time. They're up there, and uh, they've actually got a wealth of decent material, even in, even into the eighties when it all went a bit um, psychedelic and that kind of thing. But but mm. but uh, neat 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 is one hell of a punk single. What what a moment! A lovely... That's the best car chase of, yeah. the, of the film as well. There, there, there's yeah, you were yeah. talking about um, how you can get pretty <laughs> fatigued with some of these uh, some of these action sequences. You, you can't. I, I remember seeing the third Transformers. I think it's the only one I've actually seen at the cinema, and I was so fatigued by it. Just seeing the the churning gears and metal that, that was all you know computer generated and, and went on and on seemingly yeah. forever. Whereas this, the car chase that has neat 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 playing, uh, you know, sort of the, just the end of the second act. It's one of the best car chases I've probably seen in years, and um, yeah. it's pretty economical. But there's there's a couple of beats in there that. Uh, 
I hadn't really, I hadn't quite seen anything like that before. It was great. It's the reason Flea signed on for the film. I read as soon as he saw that they were using the damned. Oh, really? Because Edgar had sent the script out with the music recommendations. Yeah, I'm eager to see the film again. I don't want to be too effusive too early. As we always talk about on the podcast, the first time that you see a film, you need to take in the dialogue and the plot. You can probably get a feel for the performances. Do you understand it? How does it make you feel? The second, third and fourth view should be a more forensic investigation into the the structure of the scenes themselves, the editing, what did it do that was different to other films and how successful was it in that? How successful was it in its themes? Begin to unpick it. So having seen it only the once, what I can say is I think it's a very good film. I'm pretty certain it's a very good film. Whether it's excellent remains to be seen, but I will. I hope to catch it at the Waterman's down in Brentford. start in the a.m. questions i got a question doc why would i believe phones over here hear the goddamn word you said you lay down your whole play he ain't even listening baby the target is an armored truck at perimeter trust in dunwoody 10 a.m sharp we have the details of the route because someone at the depot has a nasal problem the bank itself is right near the Buford Highway, so we should be able to hit the ramp within 60 seconds of getting out. We also have a diversion crew. They're going to blow up a bread truck a ways away, keep the fuzz busy. The dress code is the Michael Myers Halloween mask, but don't all buy your mask at the same time. It looks suspicious. The switch car is ready, but you want me to hit the long state parking structure at Hartsfield Jackson to get a heist vehicle that stays colder longer? Boost a commuter car, a family car, something that blends in well with morning traffic. Something on the heavy side, in case we need to ram the cops off the road to... Escalade, Yukon, Avalanche, whatever. It needs to be ready for an 8.30 start in the a.m. Questions? Well, ain't y'all cute? That's my baby. Loads of good stuff about it. I think you identified as well. You said that you have a problem with John Hamm in comedic roles. There's a growing perception that in real life, John Hamm is a bit of a dick. Oh, really? Just like Don Draper was. Now, that's not to say that he is, but... Uh, he recently, in relative terms, he recently broke up with his long-term partner, Jennifer Westfeld. They'd been together for 15 or 16 years. I knew of her before I knew of him because in 15 years ago, she wrote and directed the film, sorry, wrote and starred in the film Kissing Jessica Stein, which was something of an indie hit. And it was a curio because it was a a mainstream light depiction of a lesbian relationship played as a romantic comedy and so for years his partner was more successful than him then he got mad men they broke up over the last 18 months his dependency on alcohol has become more apparent he's begun to speak about it a bit more and i think people out there are ready to dislike him right 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 and so taking this role at this time i'm not saying it's bold but it's a smart move because people are ready i, I think the public is ready to see him as a baddie they call me baby driver and once upon a pair of wheels i hit the road and i'm gone what's my number i wonder how your engines feel what a film we'll catch it again uh very very soon i want to draw our listeners attention to an anniversary germane to our topic this week it's 30 years since the release of raising arizona one of edgar wright's favorite films deeply influential on him i would advise everyone out there to make a double bill of that 
Check out Baby Driver, and when you get back about 11 on that Saturday night, put in Racing Arizona. Mm. Both films have incredible life to them. They are young filmmakers, relatively young filmmakers operating at the peak of their powers. And as I've said, Baby Driver is about directorial decisions, solving problems, figuring out how to get on screen what you've had in your head for so long. You're listening to The Evening Glass, of course, with Luke and Fletch here at the One Sensational Shop Network. We've talked about the highs and lows, I think, of some films this year. The Book of Henry, maybe not as bad as people uh, thought, although that's just my opinion. I urge you all to uh, try and check out when you can, as soon as it's available to view uh, anytime soon, because it's certainly not on at the box office anymore. And uh, Baby Driver, of course, which uh, is, in our opinion, tremendous, tremendous high. And it's great to see Edgar Wright coming out swinging after the peculiar chapter in his life that was Ant-Man, of course. Fletch, uh, Mm. before we go and uh, bid farewell to everyone, is there anything else that you would uh, like to update our very dear listeners on? Yes, I don't want anybody to miss out on the opportunity to see the latest Terrence Malick song-to-song cast of actors everybody enjoys. Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender, Rooney Mara, Natalie's in there, Kate Blanchett, apparently Val Kilmer, although it's, uh, of course, at the discretion of Malick as to who makes the cut for more than about... (laughs) Five. 80 seconds yeah. we know the way in which he edits you might see that's already you, been... you might see val kilmer's left hand in or <laughs> if you look at the letterbox copy only or something i don't know and holly hunter of racing arizona is in there maybe there's a bit of a comeback for her she's also in the big sick the new judd apatow directed by david uh, sorry directed by michael showalter one of my favorite comedians that's coming out later on and we'll be reviewing that in a forthcoming show i'd love to see more holly hunter at the cinema that'd be terrific mm. so song to song is already out the Beguiled is coming out very soon as well. Now, that's Sophia Coppola's rendering of the old Clint Eastwood film. Yeah. Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, Elle Fanning, and no surprise, Kirsten Dunst. And I do hope that people will use their nearest independent cinema to catch those works. My Cineworld boycott continues. Get yourself educated. The Guardian has a lot of interesting articles upon it. But please do, where you're able to, wherever possible, avoid using the services of Cineworld and Picture House. I believe strongly in it. My union, Beck2, is boycotting it because of their employment practices. They refuse to pay the London living wage. This has been rumbling on for a long time. They're intractable. And if you believe in the rights of workers, if you believe in union membership, if you simply want to make sure that your money goes where it should, then get out to a a different and hopefully independent-oriented cinema to see the films that we tell you about. And as I said, Baby Driver is available at the Watermans in Brentford later next month. Right in my head. I ain't got the blues no more, I said. Steps on more, I said. Pick me up, say it, I got my Uh, the Evening Glass with Luke and Fletch. Uh, you're listening to the One Sensational Shot Network, of course. Do go to onesensationalshot.com. Uh, that's where we call home. There's also uh, One Sensational Shot on Facebook. Just search that and you'll find us easy enough. You can tweet to us at One Sensational. And uh, would certainly urge you to tweet to us or if you go to onesensationalshot.com, get in touch with us through the contact form. Uh, any feedback. What you like, what you don't like, of course, uh, always very eager to hear from you. But as Fletch said, look forward to uh, speaking to you guys very, very soon uh, on the upcoming podcast. This has been Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton. Thanks very much, guys. Signing off now.
That's my baby.